0: praise God that we find ourselves at the end of the year in a place where we exalt Jesus, and we look to that as the beginning and the end of a, well, the end of a one year and the beginning of a new year. Amen? And uh, for many in our Western culture, unfortunately, New Year's is not about that, right? New Year's has nothing to do with Jesus. It's, you know, it's about making resolutions. It's uh, many resolve to do something. Maybe they resolve not to do something. Ultimately, to change something in their experience of life, one way or another. I know a common sentiment in contemporary culture is that New Year's also offers us the opportunity to remember remember all the resolutions that we did not accomplish. Some sit and trust in good fortune and luck, maybe considering the thought that beginning the New Year's with a bad shave brings good luck. Thank you all for being so gracious and not mentioning my bad haircut. Um, This is the horrors I did on my last shave. Somebody said, I read it somewhere that a bad shave brings good luck. As Christians, we believe that continually growing in the grace and knowledge of God, through Jesus and for the glory of Jesus, is the necessary change that we all must undergo. Prayerfully, you all know it's a joke. I don't believe in luck. Not only does this change please God when we conform to the image of Christ or that we desire to grow in Jesus for his glory, This glorifies God, but also it's the way that we believe we find abundant joy, peace, love, purpose, whatever you might put there, basically the all-in-all of what each of us seeks in life. You should all know my favorite John Piper quote by now. God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Do you believe that? Are you continually seeking and pursuing that satisfaction, for the edification of your spiritual life and the glory of God. I saw a post on social media earlier this week that lamented the fact that many wonder or seem to have forgotten what Christianity is supposed to look like. That's lamented both inside the church, that's lamented outside the church, and uh, we've lamented it here, that all too often Christian lives and Christian beliefs seem to contradict. It would seem the modern church and many Christians themselves are very similar to the Christians who gathered at the church of Ephesus in the first century. In his writing, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, the apostle John says to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, there's some things we have very much in common with the church at Ephesus, the modern church, even many Christians. I would say that the church and many Christians have done great deeds for the glory of God, have served God, toiled and persevered for the glory of God. And by and large, the church doesn't tolerate evil men that bring in disastrous false teachings. We would probably sit on the front line of that, right? Not liking false teachings coming into the body of Christ. And I believe the church worldwide has that mentality that we don't want uh, false teachings in the church. So we've, we've seen that. And I believe that for many of us, even the church, that we've done a lot for the glory of Christ's name. We've done a lot, and we have not grown weary. However, unfortunately, it seems that all too many have forgotten their first love. Christianity has become, become about so much other things and junk rather than the essentials, the essentials of what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. What we don't have in common is that we're not sitting here fearful, hopefully, that uh, God is going to come to our church and remove our lampstand. Again, a lampstand is your light. It's your influence. It's the, you know, you're bringing light into a dark world. We know by the sake of election that we don't have to fear that. But I do think that repentance is something necessary for each and every one of us. Something surely to consider as we move into a new year. This morning's sermon is titled Living Worthy Lives. It is my goal to explain what a life lived for the glory of God looks like as well as give you a clear exhortation on how you can maintain that life for yourself. Dare we call this a God-given scriptural exhortation on the need for change? May we all resolve to live lives that are worthy. Let's start by considering some of the wisdom the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Ephesus. If you desire to follow along, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you're reading out of the Pew Bible, that is going to be on page Thank you very much. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is the Apostle Paul writing here, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he has ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Into the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we who are grown up in all aspects, we are to grow up into all aspects in him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by... What every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building building up of itself in love. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles did in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness, holiness, and of truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's continue into chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as it is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of, for the, fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. For all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. I would venture to say that much of that is pretty self-explanatory. However, I think it's wise to remember what famous Christian writer and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, We Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be, not be able to understand it because we know very well the minute we understand it, we are obliged to act accordingly. Just one of the many things I absolutely love about the Blue Point Bible Church is that this is truly a church that is honest and diligent in regards to understanding the scriptures and being obedient to the message. So I'll just take that back. I did not call any of you scheming swindlers. I promise. Instead of fitting in the mold of the modern church that has seemingly forgotten its first love, everything that I have come to learn about and everything I have come to be encouraged by here at Blue Point Bible Church has been to restore and reform, to the, reform the church to all that God has envisioned it to be. Exactly what we just read there in Ephesians chapters 4 through 5. I could read that as almost a checklist and say, Art, we have a healthy church. We, we live these realities. We seek to, you know, mind the scriptures and, 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 and want to know the depth of what they say. And then, as most of our Bible studies are pretty evident, we desire to walk in accordance how are we called to live, or or not even our Bible studies, just the personal conversations that I've had with many, where we all desire to find ways of living out the grace of God, living out the morality of God, living out the the will of God in, in the earth so that the world would see the light of the gospel. Thank you. The motto we seem to exhibit is that of a thinking faith, a thinking faith that we desire to share with others so they could experience the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus and his truth. What a wonderful way to bring in the new year by acknowledging the wondrous reality God has created here at Blue Point Bible Church. As well as renew our commitment to continue and to grow in that regard. As we have noted, living worthy lives. As we move into 2018, we are going to be beginning what I believe each of us will find to be an encouraging, exhilarating, and authentic journey through the scriptures. I'm calling it Thinking through the scriptures. Being that the thinking through part comes so natural to us here at Blue Point Bible Church, I believe if we strategically focus on growing in the grace and knowledge of God together, we will be blessed abundantly. Simply put, this is what God promises to us if we study the scriptures. And many of you know I am in the habit of holding God to his promises. I would urge you to do the same. You see, God is glorified when we note his faithfulness, right? We say he's faithful and we note places that he's been faithful. But God is also glorified when we provide with open hearts and desiring hearts to see him reveal more of his faithfulness. So our thinking through scripture journey will be an opportunity for God to show us his faithfulness in providing all the blessings that he says studying the scriptures will provide. We'll gain an understanding, a deeper understanding of the scriptures, as well as an application of what they convey. Not a rushed or a traditional journey that leaves so much to be uncovered and oftentimes so many questions, but we will think together as a congregation, going through the scriptures slowly, methodically, systematically, understanding the story, appreciating the story. We will do what I am going to be referring to as squeaking, no, squeezing, not squeaking, Squeezing and shaking the scriptures. I promise I'll explain. Uh, you see, the fruit, of, the fruit of this is going to be the sermons and your personal study. That's what we're, we're really going to see the fruit is, in the sermons and in personal study. And uh, if you're noticing at the bottom of your bulletin, if you want to flip over the back of your bulletin, you'll see you have some things there that are going to be talked about in today's sermon. And it also at the bottom, it says next week. And it gives you a little bit of direction. We're going to be talking about the historical context and the purpose of Genesis. So each week we'll be doing that. We'll make plans, and I'll share provoking thoughts for your study during the week, and then you'll come here, and you'll be given a sermon to elaborate on the details prayerfully you were studying diligently throughout the week. It may take us about two to three months to get through Genesis, but this is okay, right? Yeah, amen. So read, repeat, pray, study, and absorb the scriptures. That's what I'm going to be calling thinking through the scriptures. Again, as I said before, squeezing and shaking the scriptures. I'm going to give you an analogy. Think of a ketchup bottle, right? Trying to get all the ketchup out of the bottle. What do you have to do? Squeeze and shake. I don't know about you. That's what I'm always doing with the the ketchup bottle. So when I thought about what I want to get out of my Bible this year, I thought of the ketchup bottle. And I said, I want to get everything that is in that bottle out. And if you know me, I'm that guy. I want to make sure it's all done. We're not throwing it out until the whole bottle is gone. Every last bit. I'll even add a little bit of water and then shake it up and get the rest. Raven hates me for it. (laughs) So, think with me this morning. How do we do that with the scriptures? How do we shake and squeeze the scriptures? This is going to be important because this is what ultimately you're going to be challenged to be doing throughout the week. In the scripture readings. So let's talk about that briefly. Context. We would all, we all, we've all heard that word, right? You have to read the Bible in context. I have this favorite quote. I don't remember who it's by at the moment. Um, they say, uh, any text without context is just a con. Right? So I'm forgetting who I'm supposed to attribute that to. That's not mine. Don't give it to me. That's, somebody else said it. So context. Now, we have two different types of context. There's historical context and there's textual context. Historical context is the audience relevance. Where does this writing come to us from? How was how this received in its original time? When the, you know, the setting, who, what, where, when, why, and how. Who, what, where, why, and how. Okay, I got it. Also, comparison, like comparison to other writings that might come from that period of time or that culture are very important in considering historical context. Textual context is obviously what, you know, I've heard many preachers say, uh, go back five, go forward five. I don't necessarily agree with that. I believe textual context, the first thing that it demands is understanding what part of, what sort of literature are you reading. If you're reading a letter written to somebody, you need to read it as a letter written to somebody. If you're reading a historical uh, accounting, then you need to read the writing as a historical accounting. If you're reading a poem, the book of Psalms, the books of wisdom, if you're reading a poem or an allegory, you need to read it as such. You know, There's a lot of disastrous interpretations in Christianity where people take something that might have been meant to be a parable and they apply it and make it a literalistic thing. So that's going to be the textual context is very important. You want to understand what it, how this literature was received and then also how the perception of the details would have been received in that time. And a lot of times, this is done through uh, cross referencing, right? You can look at a verse and you can try to find another verse that, you know, another portion of Scripture that agrees with that. This is also referred to as the analogy of faith, where, you know, we're Scripture upon Scripture, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. So, and then we can do word studies, because again, I think most of us know that our Bible wasn't written in English. So it's pretty important to go back and to learn what did that word actually mean in its original context. I could go on and on about the word soma. You know, the Greek word body and all the different definitions it could be used for. So that's important. That's textual context. Those are the things that we need to be considering as we're looking at the text. Another thing, uh, another sort of shaking and squeezing would be commentary. Right? You can go and you could read about what other Christians have said about a certain portion of Scripture over the last 2,000 years. Um, You might say this is Tradition. This is usually given to us through sermons, teachings, books, and resources. And there's nothing wrong with going to those things. As I go through my sermons throughout the year, you'll see I use a lot of resources that are outside the Bible. I read a lot of books that I want to gain a better understanding. Now, I don't use those as my source of truth, but I do believe even reading things we disagree with can edify our understanding of the things in Scripture. Even things that might be erroneous can inform us about other areas of Scripture. Then you have discussion, consulting with others or group Bible studies. That's another way of shaking and squeezing the scriptures. If you're not involved in one of the many Bible studies we offer here, you're really missing out. I know we've got Pastor Steve's house. We've got you know, Bible studies we do here Saturday and Wednesday. We have all sorts of things. And if those don't work for you, give me a call and we can just do a Bible study here at the church. Set up my office. It's looking nice. I'd love to do a Bible study up there. Even hang out in the fellowship room, make some coffee. So, again, there's so much to the shaking and squeezing with a group Bible study is very important because you're listening to the thoughts of other people. I, you know, I was just bragging to Pastor Steve about how I've been blessed here being at Blue Point and how my understanding, just having the freedom to talk about things in a group setting and hearing what other people say. Never been yelled at yet here. Um, maybe, maybe we'll save that for 2018. Um, but, you know, these things are important as we try to understand the Scripture. So Bible study, group Bible study and group discussion is a part of the shaking and squeezing. You know, I hear too many people say, oh, I just study the Bible at home, and I don't, I don't really bother going to church or doing this and that. Well, that's it's not healthy. You're not getting the most out of it. And we all know how I feel about the catch-up bottle, right? You have to get the most out of it. So, and then, of course, there's discerning the still small voice, right, application. How does this text speak to me? What is God saying to me through this scripture? Prayerfully, you do all the things I mentioned before, before you begin to try to discern that still small voice. Because I've heard some strange things. Like I have a friend that's still waiting for uh, God to tell him to flee to Judah or flee Judea or whatever he thinks that means for him. So, of course, you want to do text. You want to know context. You want to know what it actually meant to the original audience and then begin personal application. So doing all of that is how we think through the scriptures. Shaking and squeezing them for all that God intended them to be. And that is exactly what we're going to be doing here in 2018. So in conclusion to this morning's New Year's Eve exhortation, I want to challenge us to move into the year with a goal in mind. Many of you know my favorite Bible text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, a text that speaks so clearly about the goal of all that we do, especially learning the knowledge of God, being that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says this in your English Bible. It says, for the goal of our instruction is this. However, I found it interesting that the Greek word used there. Paralegia is also used to mean doctrine. So what that essentially can say is the goal of your doctrine is this, meaning everything you learn, it hinges upon these things. It's to aim toward this goal. The goal of our instruction is this, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So let's think through this verse and squeeze and shake it a bit, okay? So I looked it up in the Greek. And you notice this on the back of your bulletin. Agape ek katharos cardia, which is love from a pure heart. This is the type of love that comes from a heart that has been purified. The type of love that comes from a heart that says, I have recognized myself as a sinner in need of God's grace. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to allow Christ to live through me. And that love that lives through me, the Galatians 2.20 type of love, or you might say 1 Corinthians 13 type of love, is a love that says, I am dead to myself and Christ lives through me and loves the world through me. It's a love that we can only experience once we've been purified. The word, matter of fact, used there, katharos, is a word that's used for pruning. It would represent a vine that would be pruned. So it's, you think of your heart being a vine that needed to be pruned, and that's the type of love that we are called to have. If I could take you to a couple texts, the first text I'd like to go to is 1 John 4. And you don't have to turn on me if you choose to. That's fine. However, all these verses are noted for you in the back of the bulletin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in the world." There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And again, we're all familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which pretty much lays it out for you what love is. Love is kind. Love is patient. If you find yourself not being patient, you're not being loving. And again, I think that all goes back to the, uh, the scheming swindlers quote there uh, by uh, Kierkegaard. We could read 1 Corinthians 13, and it's very clear what love is. So we don't have to have a question of what does it mean to love from a pure heart. And if you have that question... Go to 1 Corinthians 13 after service. Also, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. Jesus said, the law and the prophets hinge upon love one another as you love yourself. That's the goal of our faith. That type of love. So everything that we learn, the goal of our instruction is this, love from a pure heart. Then he says, agathos sinaiteses. I think I said it right. Anybody going to quote me? They'll quote me online, I promise. Uh, Agathos Sinaitesis. A mind that is conscious of God's presence in all things. That's a good conscience. A mind that says God is always there, always watching, always urging, always pushing, always desiring me to live for his glory. That's a good conscience. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. Turn there real quickly. We read, Pray for us, For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. There's your answer to what a good conscience is. Live honorably in all things. In Romans chapter 14, which is said to be one of the foremost texts on the conscience in Scripture, and it talks about whether you can eat food that was sacrificed to idols, things that were very pertinent to the church at Rome in the first century. However, we have our own things, stumbling blocks that come before people in our society things that we might deem sin. Titus 1.15 tells us that to him who believes something to be sin, it is a sin to him. But to the pure, all things are pure. That's where we have to discern that still small voice. And we have to allow our conscience to lead us forward for the glory of God. The other side of that is to have a seared conscience where you never feel convicted about God's presence. You never feel convicted of doing anything wrong. May we never be of that crowd. May we never be that. Because they say that there's no returning from a seared conscience. So we want to be a people who maintain that good conscience. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, John says this. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Did you catch that? She's gonna read that eighteen, I gotta read it for myself here. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing. In his sight. That's a good conscience. That's what we're seeking after. Being honorable in all things. I think of men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who in his time had to make a matter a question of conscience. And decide what he needed to do. I think of Martin Luther. Where he said my conscience convicts me. I can't, I'll stand here and defend my teachings. Against a church that is threatening me with death. I think of Maximilian Colby, Who his conscience told him. I'm going to put my life on the line. And die in the place of another man followed his conscience and then i think of many activists of all sorts that feel obligated to their conscience to do something in their given situation ultimately because they believe god has called them to it i love to live my life in that matter and lately i've been living even more so where i ask myself even in simple things what is my conscience telling me because i think we all know that the burden of having a bad conscience wanting to do something that you wish you did. The Apostle Paul laments it. He says, I do the things I don't want to do. The things I want to do, I don't do. We don't want to live like that. That's not maintaining a good conscience. So it's good to be aware of those things because, again, the goal of our instruction is this, love from a pure heart and a good conscience. And then finally, pistis ani that is an unadulterated, bold faith, a sincere faith a faith that walks on water and moves mountains. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that by this type of faith the elders gained a good report. And sure enough when you go to Joshua chapter 3 and you read about them entering into the land of Canaan. There's something interesting that happens there. The water didn't recede until they took that first step. So but then all of a sudden as the end of the story they entered in on dry land but the water was there. When they took that first step and those elders, I, we had watched a Bible study here a while back with Ray Vanderlaan and he did a great picture of that, how they had to step in the water. That first step was in the water. That first step seemed ludicrous, kind of like Simon Peter getting out of the boat. You know, if that's you, Lord, tell me to get out of the boat. That first step has to seem crazy, for lack of a better word. It has to be. And sure enough, James one twenty two challenges us that faith must be followed by works. That's that work, to put it into action. Faith is a verb. Martin Luther King Jr. remarked, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the staircase. Amen. Even when you don't see the waters receding, just take that first step. I love the famous prayer regarding St. Patrick called St. Patrick's Breastplate, which serves as an emblem of faith. Christ being with you and around you and securing you in all that you do. Imagine praying this every morning. Christ be with me. Christ go before me. Christ go behind me. Christ be in me. Christ be beneath me. Christ be above me. Christ on my right side. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in the eye in the eye of every eye that see, Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the Creator of creation. Imagine having that that boldness to say that, that Christ is with me in all that I do and everywhere that I go. That's the type of faith. That's a sincere, a bold, unadulterated faith. That's the goal of our instruction. The goal of our instruction is this love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let those things be seen in and through all that we do individually and collectively in 2018. How about that as a New Year's resolution? Amen? I believe by his grace and power that I have been able to effectively encourage and excite you all a little bit more to desire more from the scriptures this year and thus live lives worthy for God. Prayerfully, you are ready to think through the scriptures and love from a pure heart, maintain a good conscience, toward God and others, and allow faith to be seen in and through your daily life and choices. Let's pray and go and enjoy one of our famous Blue Point Bible Church potlucks and fellowship together. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we ask that you empower us. We ask that you empower us to truly take on a year for your glory, Lord. We know that you are faithful and you always provide the increase. So this year, Lord, as we endeavor to think through the scriptures as we endeavor to cleave to your truth which you have told us that if we study to show ourselves approved and rightly divide your truth that we need not be ashamed completely reversing the curse in the garden lord thank you allow us to move in that more fully this year lord allow us to truly know you and to have confidence that we know you as we live out the realities of the goal of our faith thank you lord bless each and every one of us lord as we move into 2018 so that we would see you more fully, that we would desire more of your word, Lord, that we would foster a hunger that desires more of you. Give us the peace, the love, the providence that you promised, Lord, and allow us to turn back and praise you for it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.